racism in the time of pandemic. A young woman wearing a mask is attacked in a subway station. Come here, sanitize your Come here. An elderly woman is chased by a bully trying to squirt hand sanitizer on her. Harassment and assaults against Asian Americans are up sharply. One disturbing result of the coronavirus pandemic has been the sharp increase in discrimination, racism, and even violence targeting Asian communities across North America as a result of racial profiling. Even in majority Asian cities like Vancouver, Canada, where crimes against Asian Canadians have increased 600%. The Vancouver Police Department says there's been a 600% increase in reports of hate crimes targeting the Asian community, whether they're of Chinese, Asian Korean, have been or targeted, yelled at, spat at, and worse. People lashing out at them in the mistaken belief that somehow their Asian descent makes them responsible for the novel coronavirus. Yet, while some national leaders like U.S. President Donald Trump deny links between their own rhetoric and the rise in racial violence, because it comes from China. It's not racist at all, no, not at all. It comes from China. For members of Asian communities across North America, recent events are only the latest painful reminder of the longer history of discrimination and racism targeting Asians. A young white man who called her names and then spit on her. So I actually felt really angry. That was probably the strongest emotion I felt. Angry that she'd been singled out in this humiliating way based on her racial background. A lot of these racist incidents that has increasingly appeared, um, a lot of them is, is done by white folks. And so when it's that aggression and racism against people of color, there's this othering of, you don't belong here. How does the recent rise in anti-Asian violence as a result of coronavirus fit into the longer history of anti-Asian xenophobia and nativism in North America? How did rhetoric of disease and fears of economic competition contribute to racist anti-Asian immigration policies and the displacement of Asian immigrant communities? How does the all-too-quick return of racism and discrimination targeting Asian communities expose the fragility of the myth of Asians as a model minority? And finally, how is the Asian American community itself being impacted by the coronavirus pandemic and reacting to the recent increase in racial discrimination? I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Japan on the Record. For more on the history of racism targeting Asian communities in North America, along with how the coronavirus has impacted the Asian American community, I talked first with Dr. Michael Jin, Assistant Professor of History and Global Asian Studies in the Department of History at the University of Illinois, Chicago. I then talked with Dr. Vivian Shaw, College Fellow in the Department of Sociology at Harvard University and the lead researcher for the AAPI COVID-19 project. Dr. Jin is the author of Citizens, Immigrants, and the Stateless, The Making of a Japanese-American Diaspora in the Pacific, forthcoming from Stanford University Press in 2021. And Dr. Shaw is the author recently of We Are Already Living Together, Race, Collective Struggle, and the Reawakened Nation in Post-311 Japan, in Precarious Belongings, Affect, and Nationalism in Asia, published by Rowan and Littlefield in 2017. I started by asking Dr. Jin to place recent events into the longer history of racism and violence targeting Asian communities in North America. Yes, the rise in anti-Asian violence and xenophobic harassment in response to COVID-19 is really not something that emerged simply out of the mass hysteria over the current medical crisis, of which many have blamed China as a source, of course. The anti-Asian sentiment, in fact, has shaped the deeply entrenched culture and politics of xenophobia in the United States since the arrival of the Chinese in the first half of the 19th century. Chinese immigrants were characterized then as a socioeconomic and cultural threat to white America, and 
in addition to being characterized as cheap laborers and thus a threat to the American working class, Chinese immigrants were also scapegoated for being the source of public health crises. From the 1870s to uh, the early 1900s, policymakers and medical professionals claimed that the Chinatowns throughout the American West were to blame for major epidemic outbreaks from smallpox to venereal disease. And throughout the late 19th century and early 20th century, the idea that the Chinese and other Asian groups, such as South Asian immigrants, were an undesirable and inferior race and a threat to the working people of the United States served as the seeds of violent movement to expel the Asian immigrant communities. Um, There were race riots and lynching in towns big and small, from Los Angeles to Denver to Bellingham, Washington to Santa Cruz, California. And of course, this anti-Asian racism was not a uniquely American phenomenon either, as the Chinese communities in other white-majority settler colonial societies like Australia and Canada faced uh, similar hostilities from race riots in Lambing Flat in Australia uh, in the 1860s to the Vancouver riots in the early 20th century. So there is a long history of anti-Asian violence that never really went away. Yeah, that's a great point about how this anti-Asian violence was seen all around the world in white settler colonial societies. You mentioned the riots in Vancouver, for example, in 1907 as a perfect example of that. And there is this long history of xenophobia. And you know, we even get legislation like the Chinese Exclusion Act in the U.S. and other types of handshake agreements. But this isn't limited only to the early 20th century, of course. And when looking at this kind of history of anti-Asian sentiment and anti-Asian policies in the U.S., of course, the internment of Japanese Americans and Japanese Canadians comes to mind. Can you elaborate on some of the linkages? Absolutely. Uh, the, the mass incarceration of Japanese and Japanese Americans during World War II was a critical extension of this history of yellow peril and anti-Asian violence. Going back to the anti-Chinese violence and the Chinese Exclusion Act, the early Asian exclusion movement that demonized the Chinese as a threat to the health and well-being of white Americans set a precedent in terms of how the fierce xenophobia against immigrants directly resulted in institutionalizing racism at the policy level. The very first restrictive federal immigration laws, the Page Act of 1875 and the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, The laws that criminalized Chinese immigrants ended the era of open borders in U.S. history and established a formal regime of U.S. immigration policies. And as a result, the notions about the so-called legal and illegal immigrants were born. And this led to a series of even more exclusionary legal and judicial enactments throughout the first half of the 20th century based on the widespread notion that Asians, and especially Japanese, during the first half of the 20th century, were perpetually foreign, inassimilable, and therefore dangerous and undesirable. During the first half of the 20th century, the white nationalist activists targeted the Japanese and their U.S.-born children as a new immigrant menace, especially with the Japan emerging as a colonial power in Asia, rivaling Western empires and posing a challenge to the U.S. geopolitical interest in the region. And these exclusionists made concerted efforts to deploy the rhetoric of yellow peril, to depict the Japanese as an undesirable and dangerous threat to white America. In 1920, in California, for example, U.S. Senator James Phelan famously ran his re-election campaign with slogans like, Keep California White and Save Our State from Oriental Aggression. The Asian exclusion movement also targeted the U.S. citizens of Japanese descent and anti-immigrant Activists like B.S. McClatchy, who was an influential publisher in California, argued that 
Second-generation Japanese Americans were a dangerous foreign element to be expelled, along with their Japanese parents. And McClatch and other anti-Japanese agitators also called for changing the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution to remove birthright citizenship of the American children born to Japanese immigrants altogether. And this was well before the Pacific War. So this is part of the long history of, of the white nationalist movement in the United States to eliminate the birth citizenship clause in the Constitution, something that is still going on today. The Japanese Americans before World War II constituted barely over 1% of the population of California, which was the state with the largest Japanese population in the contiguous United States. But the anti-Japanese rhetoric had turned Japanese Americans into the most dangerous threat to white America. So it was in this context that after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941, the U.S. Department of War justified its so-called military necessity for mass incarceration of Japanese Americans based on this nativist argument that the U.S.-born citizens of Japanese ancestry were essentially Japanese. Lieutenant General John L. Dwight of the U.S. Army's Western Defense Command was the man who spearheaded the mass removal of Japanese Americans from the U.S. West Coast in 1942. And he infamously stated, it makes no difference whether a Nisei or U.S.-born Japanese American is an American citizen, he is still a Japanese. So this characterization of Japanese Americans as perpetual foreigners and now dangerous enemy aliens engendered a profound social burden for the Japanese American community to prove their loyalty, even as they endured mass incarceration. That's a fantastic point about how the internment of Japanese Americans, which I, I think you know we learn about in school a lot, and Americans are very familiar with this, but might not necessarily think of it as the culmination of decades of anti-Japanese policies or even anti-Asian policies. You mentioned this senatorial campaign that this person was running where he talked about keep California white. There was surprisingly similar rhetoric in BC, I, I'm aware of, where they're talking about, you know, we need to keep BC a white province. And in BC, it seemed that internment was just one way that these racist politicians in Canada were able to finally achieve this goal of making BC white. And one of the things that you know they were concerned about wasn't only necessarily potential of espionage or this view of Japanese as enemy combatants. You know, there was also an economic aspect to it, where in, in BC in, in particular, Japanese had basically come in and dominated the fishing industry, dominated the salmon canning industry. Do we see similar economic concerns in California? And is that also what's driving some of this anti-Asian racism? Absolutely. I mean, that, I mean, the economic concerns was very much part of what had driven this ferocious anti-Japanese movement throughout the first half of the 20th century. By the 1910s and 1920s, the Asian exclusion movement had evolved into a very sophisticated political movement. Various grassroots activist groups, labor unions, white farmers associations, native groups, and so forth, they worked together to actively lobby the state government, starting in California, but this movement also quickly spread to other Western states to enact very restrictive alien land laws in an effort to stop what they framed as a danger of Japanese competition. So these alien land laws prohibited Japanese land ownership, and the revised land laws in California and elsewhere also banned Japanese land ownership and land lease. So definitely the Japanese and other Asian groups as the economic threat 
to the white working class as well as the white entrepreneurs uh, was very much part of this fierce anti-Japanese movement. You brought up this kind of tension with economic success of Asian Americans and then also this idea that Asian Americans had assimilated, in particular the Japanese Americans had assimilated so much, and this is what made the internment such a morally repugnant crime. Even today, there are even still, there is this talk about Asian American socioeconomic mobility making them the model minority. And so what is this recent rise in violence directed towards Asian Americans as a result of COVID-19? Tell us about this myth and perhaps how fragile it is. Yes, the popular post-war image of uh, Japanese Americans as a patriotic model minority who had overcome racism and proved their loyalty to America and rebuilt their community and achieved remarkable socioeconomic mobility indeed became a prototype of the Asian American model minority image that was widely promoted by the mass media throughout the Cold War decades. And this sweeping generalization touting Asian Americans' educational and socioeconomic success has been the basis, as you said, of, of the flawed idea that Asian Americans may no longer be subject to structural racism and racial violence. But this acceptance or rehabilitation of Asians by white America has proved to be precarious and fragile as the United States continues to wage war with its enemies in Asia, in, in Korea, Southeast Asia, then Persian Gulf, Afghanistan, and of course, the rise of China as a threat to the U.S., geopolitical interest in Asia has added yet another dimension to this long history of yellow peril. And Asians and Asian Americans have continued to be targeted for racial profiling, harassment, and hate crimes, which have tended to increase with alarming frequency at various moments of crisis. A case in point is the murder case of Vincent Chin in Detroit in 1982. During economic recession and mass unemployment, for which the rise of Japan as an economic competitor was often blamed. Chin was a 27-year-old Chinese-American accountant who could very well have qualified as a model Asian-American, but he became a victim of Japan bashing and a renewed anti-Japanese hysteria in 1982 uh, when he was approached by two white men. Um, and, and Chin, by the way, was heading the night out with his friends to celebrate his upcoming wedding. And uh, these two men, Ronald Stevens and Mike Nitz, were former auto workers who had been laid off, and they blamed Vincent Chin and other Japanese for taking their jobs away, despite the fact that Chin was a Chinese American. And what started as a verbal attack ended with Vincent Chin beaten to death by the two men with a baseball bat, and neither of the assailants spent a day in prison. So that was one of the countless cases of anti-Asian violence that never really went away, and it demonstrates that the polarizing images of Asian Americans as a highly touted model minority on one hand and an undesirable enemy on the other are predicated on the powerful idea that Asians are perpetually foreign and remain a perpetual threat to white America. And almost 40 years later, Asians and Asian Americans in the United States continue to find themselves vulnerable to institutional racism and racial violence and harassment and hate crimes, especially in times of crisis like the current pandemic, of course, of which many have blamed China and Chinese as, as a source. So we're, we're really seeing the history of yellow peril and anti-Asian violence repeating itself. 
that case of Vincent Chen is definitely a devastating case of mistaken identity. And I think we're seeing that again now with, you know, hear stories about Asian Americans who even walking around town, they immediately get kind of misidentified as Chinese. I mean, that is absolutely true. I mean, you know, Orientalism certainly has a power to, you know, lump diverse Asian groups and individuals, you know, into this one category, right? And so I, I definitely agree that Asians and Asian Americans of different ancestries are, are certainly being targeted. And I happen to live in a Chicago suburb, which is often touted as a very progressive place and known for its cultural diversity and tolerance. But very recently, I experienced xenophobic harassment while, while I was jogging outside, which reminds me that there really is no safe place for people that look like me in the midst of this, this global pandemic. I next talked with Dr. Shaw, who's involved with a collaborative project at Harvard University, documenting different ways COVID-19 is impacting the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities, covering a number of different aspects, including labor and the economy, community organizing, health, education, family, and online spaces. I started by asking Dr. Shaw to give us a general outline of the project, along with its origins, its organization, and its ongoing work. Yeah, thanks so much for asking this question. So I guess I'll talk a little bit first about how the project found its inception. I had previously for the sociology department at Harvard presented some of my work based on my book project. And that work has documented different social movements that emerged after the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. And so my colleagues had seen some of my work on this topic and my theorizing of how people become politically active after disasters. And also how racial politics become a flashpoint in the context of crisis. How I had been looking at that was in the ways in which social movement networks that had come out of the response to the disaster had then eventually laid the foundation for anti-racism social movements that then came out a couple of years later when hate speech became a more conspicuous problem in Japan. And so, you know, I just had a conversation with this particular colleague and she pointed out, you know, what we're seeing right now with COVID as far as anti-Asian racism and these hate incidents. She pointed out that it actually seemed to have some resonance with my old research. It's funny because I had been thinking about it from the perspective of being an Asian American person and what that meant for me socially. But I hadn't actually made that intellectual connection, right? And so I have to credit her a lot for showing me that connection. And so I thought about that. Soon after we had that conversation, I was like, you know, I kind of want to see what is going on with this particular problem, both in terms of finding out what types of stories people had about how they're experiencing racism, the ways in which these types of assumptions about the virus being attached to, for instance, Asian Americans or Asian immigrants from different parts of continents such as China. I was just kind of interested in trying to find out what these stories were. So I put out a very casual call on Twitter to try to find out what was going on. So I got, you know, an interesting response. And what became very clear was that this problem of racism had many different facets to it. So I think sometimes when we think about acts of hate speech, right, or acts of racially based violence, we kind of think about that as one category. But if you actually unpack it, these types of incidents have a broad effect on many different aspects of people's lives. So I'll give you some examples. For instance, one woman emailed me and she talked about how she lived in a town that was majority white and had already kind of been dealing with microaggressions for several years because she had a small child. But then because of coronavirus and some of the discussions that were happening in the context of her school, for instance, and in conversations with other parents, 
she was concerned about how this was going to affect her child. Then in a totally different context, somebody shared a tweet with me that he had already posted on Twitter about his experience on a dating website that was kind of geared towards gay men. He was an Asian American man. And I don't remember if he had messaged a person or the person messaged him first, but they called him coronavirus, right? And so he felt this kind of stigma being on this dating website. And so I think what that early lesson taught me was that I, I think often we think about hate crimes as this one thing, right? As this one kind of category of experience. And, you know, there, there's some truth to that. But then racism has these very diverse consequences for different parts of people's lives. So with that in mind, I thought if I want to study racial politics and racial consequences related to COVID, I need to have some help. There's no way that I can look at this huge phenomenon and just do it all on my own. You know, we have a core team, but then we also have people who we've brought on for specific projects. So for instance, we have some projects focused on family violence and young adults. And so we've brought on social workers who have experience with this. We also have brought on some people who have experienced more with like Southeast Asian communities, because unfortunately, most of our team happens to come from East Asian backgrounds. And so we, we want to have greater representation. So that's how the sort of collaborative nature of the team came out. And so as far as what our focus is, as I mentioned, we wanted to look at these multiple dimensions of Asian American experiences that are being affected by the pandemic. And we also wanted to think what the next step is of how racism is affecting people's lives. So there's a lot of really excellent work going on right now. For instance, there is the AAPI Hate Reporting Center, which is spearheaded by Russell Jung uh, in the Bay Area. And so there's a lot of important work documenting hate incidents as they're happening. But we wanted to see, you know, what are kind of the broader impacts of this type of racism that is often coming out through rhetoric, through different consumption patterns and other types of things. So what we've done as we've kind of been developing this project, we've been thinking about what are different ways that we can create these different studies, right, out of our larger research question, which is how is COVID impacting the lives of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders? Right now, we have two studies that we've already developed. One of them is looking at COVID, Asian American and Pacific Islanders and labor issues. There's a lot of research about small businesses after disasters. But what's unique about COVID is that COVID is this ongoing pandemic. So first, we're interested in how Asian American workers are affected by the pandemic. And there's research from September 11th, where Asian Americans who had been laid off after that disaster had a more difficult time re-entering the workforce, the paid workforce, because they didn't have the same types of social networks that, say, white Americans had. So in addition to Asian American workers who have difficulty re-entering to the job market, our project's approach towards disaggregating what Asian America means as far as not only being, say, East Asians, but also including Southeast Asians, Pacific Islanders, though that is kind of a sort of complex categorization because some Pacific Islanders don't necessarily want to be included in the category alongside Asian Americans. And a lot of these groups are coming from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And so the types of work that they do are often very different. So we're trying to look at what are the diverse consequences, not only, say, families that are middle class being in a position of instability where they may be on the precipice of losing their economic instability, but also Asian American communities that are, have already been living in economically precarious situations. And then another way we're looking at it is by focusing on small businesses. 
one of the motivating questions we have with that is remembering the early days of the pandemic in which Chinatowns in different cities were reporting people not really wanting to go there anymore because of this fear that these geographies were kind of more vulnerable to the virus in other places because of how, you know, the rhetoric around China being the cause of the disaster being kind of then mapped onto Asian bodies in the U.S. We are, have this question about as the quarantine gets lifted in various states, what are the impacts going to be on Asian-owned businesses? To what extent is the stigma going to continue to last and then affect processes of economic recovery? And so what we're challenging through this question is this idea that economic recovery is going to happen evenly for different businesses, right? So there's a lot of discussion right now about what types of businesses will survive and what won't. And what we want to add to that discussion is how there is a racial component to that as well. We know economically, there's always a racial component, but we think in particular, this element of racial stigma and how that shapes to what extent people are willing to patronize these different types of businesses as that being a factor. You mentioned that one important aspect of the impact of coronavirus on the Asian American Pacific Islander communities has been this recent rise in racism. And in the earlier part of the episode, Dr. Jin was putting this into the context of a longer history of white society othering Asians as perpetually foreign and perpetually diseased. So I was wondering, could you talk a little bit more about what your project has found regarding ways that AAPI organizations are combating this anti-Asian racism and xenophobia, along with what impact this is having on the AAPI community? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that we can talk a little bit about what are the ways in which API communities are now responding to these issues and how we are trying to mobilize in order to provide extra resources for Asian Americans um, and Pacific Islanders who often are feeling very vulnerable right now. In some ways, in response to a lot of this increase in anti-Asian hate speech and violence, there have been a lot of efforts by different community-based organizations as well as academic researchers to one, try to document that. So I've seen a lot of different actors, you know, not only from the Bay Area, which I had mentioned, but also from Denver, from, um, you know, my colleague Eric Tang in the Austin area, you know, different groups of people coming together to try to document these incidents of hate that are happening, to whom they're happening to, and then using that to sort of inform policy that can then be implemented in different cities and across the country. For instance, Russell Jung's group has looked at how the different age breakdowns of people who are getting affected by this rhetoric, right? And also, you know, what types of places that these are happening. So I think that there's definitely this call among Asian American researchers to really focus on this problem right now. And I think that there's a lot of discussion. Um, there's a lot of work by different organizations to educate other people to host these webinars. For instance, there's a lot of analysis and, and efforts by different community-based organizations to educate broader publics as well as members of the Asian American community to understand, you know, what are the sort of backgrounds for structural racism? How has that developed historically? And where are we now with that? I've also seen grassroots efforts to support different Chinatown restaurants. There have also been reports of, you know, neighborhood patrols in Chinatown and people walking around communities to try to protect each other. But something I think that's also very interesting, and it's something that's become more visible in this moment that we are in right now, which is a sort of increased civil unrest in response to police brutality, in particular, the killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and, you know, a number of other people is that within Asian American progressive communities, there's increasing attention to the ways in which 
Asian Americans are also kind of racialized alongside the racialization of Black Americans. And so I've seen also this kind of increasing proliferation of different webinars about Asian Americans and anti-Black racism, right? So teach-ins and things like that. And I also personally am involved with some of these efforts in that I'm working with a number of scholars, some of them actually also in Japan studies, such as Lisa Onaga. We are kind of working on developing a teach sheet so that Asian Americans and also people living in Asia can have a resource to teach their family members about structural racism, police brutality, and these kind of questions. Even answering questions such as like, what is a riot? What does that mean as a term? How is that politicized? We want to provide a toolkit for people to answer that. And so I think that the reason I mentioned this, and I know that it kind of seems a little bit separate in some ways from this question of COVID that my project has been looking at, It's because I think that in some ways, similar to how I saw in Japan, you know, nuclear politics and those types of mobilizations laying the groundwork for anti-racist mobilizations, this more conspicuous discourse around racism that has affected Asian Americans, I see that as being a foundation by which Asian Americans then also start to think about other types of political issues related to race. The fact that we are seeing that Asian Americans still are not seen as Americans, that we're still being seen as perpetual foreigners. And I, I think that just to say, like, it's not necessarily that our goal should be to be accepted in the same way that white Americans are. But I think the reason why it's very troubling is because this translates to certain types of civil rights, and it translates to issues of safety and protection. And I think that is kind of what you know, even more so than this question of national identity, these types of material realities is what is, I think, very relevant and can be very troublesome in some ways. As Asian Americans have, through this pandemic, come to realize that we have a very tenuous place within this American imagination, I think that this is laying the groundwork for us to also think about racism towards other groups as well. That said, we can also see how some of this fear that Asian Americans are experiencing as far as feeling unsafe in public and feeling like we are vulnerable to harassment and verbal abuse. I've seen already, you know, in different social media groups, how this actually can also, on the other hand, stoke discriminatory ideas about other groups. I've seen on Facebook, for instance, Asian Americans blaming other people of color groups, Black Americans and Latinx people as themselves perpetrators of this violence. So I think that There's a lot of unpacking that needs to be done. And, you know, the reality is, is that a lot of people are starting to think about racism through this type of language that they may not have been as familiar with. You know, I'm an academic, so I'm familiar with this, but for a lot of people, they don't necessarily have that vocabulary. So I think that for many of us in our communities, it requires a lot of work for us to understand this history, to understand these complex concepts. And this is what the role of teaching and research is, I think, is to help clarify that path. I'm Tristan Gruno, and this has been Japan on the Record, the podcast where scholars of Japan bring their expertise to bear on issues in the news. Hosted and produced by Tristan Gruno of the Council on East Asian Studies at Yale University. Thank you for listening.